I'm Tim Crosby and welcome to episode number 50 of Down the Track. Sean Whip running through the big 50 banner. Welcome to the 50th episode. Yeah, oh, I didn't know if we'd ever get this far, Tim, but no, it's, it's good to get the ground number and uh, yeah, see if we can push on for another 50. Yeah, it's been an interesting little journey with the um, the podcast, hasn't it? You know, what started, you know, we had sort of fewer concepts about what we wanted to do and, and I think we've generally stuck to theme, but uh, there's been some great highs during the, the whole period and I've actually enjoyed this part of my job. You? Yeah, I, I think it was something that started off as a just a big experiment and, you know, us not really knowing initially what we would do or how we would, you know, look for certain guests or go with certain themes or, you know, even start to look into those monthly or, or seasonal um, options for, for concepts. Um, yeah, it's been pretty cool seeing it um, grow a bit into something that now we've got more of a structure for and, and can sort of queue people up in advance. Yeah, I think um, COVID actually has treated us kindly. Well, it's not a nice way to put it, is it? But um, due to the unshackling of being studio-bound for the um, podcast and moving to online-bound, it has really opened the doors to this podcast a hell of a lot more than when we were reliant on doing it in the studio and having it professionally produced. And yeah, although definitely. there are audio quality issues every now and then, <laughs> it's uh, been fantastic you know like doing grace brown when it was you know one o'clock in the morning over here uh and she was literally things like that have been fantastic you know getting people from the states and all that uh and hopefully that's going to be a theme that we can continue have you had any particular highlights over the last 50 episodes that um, you want to oh it's, it's tough to go you know off, off the top of your head but i think especially in um just when you when we've had stuff where we've felt there's a, a good uh sort of day or idea for something, uh, especially in some of those parrot episodes as well, being able to get the uh, you know, likes of a Joe Clifford or a, or a Marty Jackson or, you know, especially with Marty in terms of talking about, you know, coaching being something he was interested in and, and quite early in the year and then now seeing him doing that um, in July yep. has, has been something really cool to follow. Uh, yeah, a very positive force in our sport. Brian O'Donnell to me was one of the sort of standouts just because yeah. of the pure intensity of those two episodes and I hope people do, did enjoy her and her conversation. What I've enjoyed um, is when a guest might take you somewhere where you didn't expect them to go and we've had yeah. a few of those and, you know, it hasn't been scripted. It's just been where the conversation has gone and both you and I have gone, whoa, okay, um, and then had to respond accordingly. But I, I think that's the beauty of um, not always being totally scripted. Yeah, it's nice to have a little bit of prep, and we do do our prep. We're not that unprofessional. <laughs> but when a conversation goes off on a tangent and someone goes particularly into a very deep topic yeah. um, that you weren't expecting, that can be one of those sort of, um, you know, the, the little highs that you look back on and think, well, you know, hopefully the listeners appreciate that. They might not know that we're off. Tan, you know, on a tangent, but uh, you know, for us, we certainly were on tangents at times where we weren't scripted at all. Yeah, and I think that's the fun thing in having those those longer format discussions with guests, where you know, if, if they if they want to pick out their own sort of angle with a question, or, or they want to uh, you know sort of bounce something back on us, um, it can go from there, and, and that's where it's a a bit of a a bit of a more creative um, platform than some of the other more standardised back and forth um, interview. Um, yeah, sort of methods. Yep. Yeah, and I'm also pleased that um, you know because you know as we 
constantly point out in this this podcast both of you come of both of us sorry come from the middle distance and distance background but i think we've diversified quite nicely we've we've done some really good stuff with the walkers like ridian and uh, jemima yeah uh we had you know alex and ned on for the hammer special uh you know we've had marty on and uh we've probably got to jump into the jumps a little bit more uh you know we've tried to you know get a few more of the jumpers on and that's certainly a focus we'll be looking at in 2021 but also in 2021 we will see the return of the live interviews when we are at events and interviewing so that will be then fed back in so during covid obviously that could not happen because people weren't competing and we weren't out there with our little mics (laughs) but 2021 i would anticipate we'll be out there at events and talking to people and so if you see a friendly face coming up with a a little microphone and or their mobile phone pointing in your direction feel free to talk to us because we do like getting diversity of um, speakers comments and certainly diversity of sort of views on the sport and uh, and different areas of the sport as well because very diverse sport you know you and i could easily do a podcast just on distance running sean couldn't we and we you know that would be a lot easier for us but that's not what <laughs> this is that down the track is yeah, not that. I, I think that's the sort of athletics victoria uh not even an expectation it's just like it's it's an obligation you know you you're supposed to it is try yeah. and cover the sport, you know, um, in its entirety in the state. Um, and I think some of, especially for us, I think we tend to ask. Um, I don't know if better is the right word, but just in terms of researching guests and you know, yeah. really having like a bit of a more informed. I think. Yeah, I think you, you're forced to ask more informed questions when it's not your event group. Um, and, and through that, I think yeah, we've had some really interesting interactions. Yeah, no conspiracy theories, no crap. We just no. sort of hopefully get the real stuff out there. I'm not having a go at anyone in particular. Um, so, look, episode 50, we've, we've made the, the half century. Uh, this one is NCAA specific. So it's going to be, you know, the, the two interviews that you're going to hear, Kyle Murphy from Shepparton, Archie Wallace from Bendigo, one's at Harvard, the other one's at Wake Forest. Really, you know, just gentle flowing interviews with two very – nice guys uh two very intelligent guys as well and i really do hope that the uh the listeners enjoy those two interviews and then as usual you and i get to talk a little bit of everything else that's going on in the sport um at the conclusion of the two interviews so welcome to episode number 50 hope everyone enjoys it so really good to have Cole murphy on the line Cole currently in shepparton welcome along yeah thanks for having me guys Sean, I'll probably hand over to you. You're more of the expert on all things US collegiate. So if you want to start the line of questioning. <laughs> yeah, so I guess an intro for anyone who's not familiar with Kyle. Um, I got to know Kyle through um, obviously the, the state teams that he was making um, in Victoria um, and was a, a pretty talented jumper and did some sprints on the side as well. So I think um, triple jump was his, was his main persuasion um, and he was sort of a 15-metre to sort of you know, all the way up to a, a fifteen thirty six jumper. Um, in the time I saw him in Australia, um, and at the time I was working with the the Target Talent Program as well. And uh, through talking to Kyle and his parents, you know, it became apparent that Kyle was pretty interested in getting over to the US um, to go to college in the NCAA system. Um, and Kyle's parents were, were pretty laid back, just saying, "Oh, you know, he's he's researching it all himself. He's he's looking into it." Um, and yeah, it wasn't until maybe a little bit later on. You know, I heard that Kyle had ended up at um, Harvard, which is a, a bit of a difficult school to get into academically usually, would be a fair understatement. Um, but it was really interesting because a lot of the kids we talk to that end up going to a school in the NCAA 
Um, the Ivy League schools are a little bit different in the way they approach athletics, but I'll let Kyle tell the story a little better. I, I think the most interesting thing from my end is, you know, Kyle coming from um, coming from the Shepparton area. When did it sort of first dawn on you that you might not want to, you know, obviously you were going to have to move for university or, or travel in, in some capacity. Um, when did the US idea sort of crop up? Yeah, so it was actually um, sort of around the time that we're doing Target Talent Program and I'd heard about there was this, um, was a recruiting agency came to Lakeside one day and sort of, you know, finding out all about the US and the opportunities there, which I actually had no idea at the time that that was an option. Um, and we got really excited by that and we went along and learned some stuff. Um, but in the end, I sort of just felt that this recruiting agency that was doing it for us, we couldn't necessarily, you know, meet that price point. It mm. felt a bit expensive. Um, so that's when I sort of decided to start doing a bit of research myself and see if it was still possible to do it like independently. Yeah. Um, and of course it is. But yep. <laughs> as an individual, um, and you know, you don't know a single thing about the US collegiate system is a very daunting task to actually get started. Yeah. Um, Cole, how did you actually start getting your list together of the ones that you thought were preferred unis for you? Um, well, the thing was, I actually didn't really know many of the universities that were out there um, in America. So, funnily enough, some of these schools such as Harvard or Princeton or Stanford, ones that are like pretty difficult to get into, they were the only ones I actually knew the names of. So they're the first ones I reached <laughs> out to. Um, but then I learned about um, there's certain websites like TIFAs and stuff that you can look at, um, yeah. the athlete performances and find out like which universities have a good jump squad, um, what are the academic rate rankings and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I started using that to identify other colleges as well. So, so I guess from there, you know, you've you figured out you've got a bit of a list. Um, and I, I'd say as a side note, yeah, as someone who's looked into it a bit, um, I definitely advocate, yeah, for <laughs> was never personally um, a, a, an agency sort of advocate myself in that, yeah, we have a quantifiable sport and um, athletics is one of the slightly easier ones to sort of sell yourself um, to a school in. Um, so I guess that was that an initial email process sort of back and forward and, and, you know, you would have had to sit the SATs in there somewhere as well, which is yeah. listening yeah. to sort of the standard academic testing for the US. Yeah. So again, like all that stuff, like I'd never heard of an SAT. I didn't know what that was. Mm. I didn't know what a GPA was, but yeah. once I started just emailing these coaches and you can find the emails of these coaches on most of the, um, team's websites you just look up a university track team and you'll find the staff email um and like i sent out you know dozens and dozens eventually hundreds of those emails and eventually you'll get a few in return and if they're interested in you they will help you along the process mm. so um mark mangicotti from harvard track and field um is my current coach and so i was talking to him and he basically laid out the steps for me he's like okay like um we think you could be valuable to this team. If you want to pursue this, this is what you need to do, um, such as register with the eligibility center, sit the SAT, convert GPAs, all that sort of thing. Mm. 
And and where did you feel like you were sitting? Because obviously at the time as well, you were quite handy at a national level in long jump as well. So I guess in terms of that profile that you were, you know, sort of making for US schools, you know, you you could possibly score in a few events, um, which I guess is a draw card. But you know, obviously you would have still had a pretty large, I guess, procedural or sort of academic set of um, steps to go through. Yeah, absolutely. So just needed to do as well as I could throughout VCE and well really they're they're looking at grades from I believe year nine all the way through to the end of VCE so and I was starting um to look at this process in year 10 I believe and like my year nine academic transcript wasn't the strongest so that was a little bit nerve-wracking for me um especially since you think of something like Harvard they're like oh you might think oh like you know if I haven't got all A's since year nine, I've probably got no chance. But it's not necessarily the case. Um, like I found that it reflected good on me that I was, even though I started, you know, not great in say year nine, but I showed steady improvement. Um, it demonstrated to the admissions that, you know, I was willing to put in work and improve and that, um, you know, I could work towards something. Cole, how, how important is it to have the coach on side as well? As in, Mark obviously recognised that you had a part to play within his squad. Does he Can he sort of then have some influence on the admissions to try and get you in and, and sort of expedite that process? Um, they can absolutely support your application. Um, they don't have the power to, no matter how good an athlete you are, they don't have the power to say, okay, we want you, you're in. But they can you know, write a letter or just mark your application as, hey, um, we believe that this person would be very valuable to our track team. Um, this is our experience with them. And that goes along with your the rest of your application. And that's just like a positive marker on your admissions profile. But So it's a boost, but it's not a sure thing. Yeah, and I guess that, would have been one of the tricky things in your process. So so when you got to having sat the SAT, which again, for anyone listening at home, is about a five-hour exam with, with some breaks thrown in. So it's, it's unconventional to what we do in Australia usually. Um, did you sort of just have Harvard left on your list or did you have a couple of schools you were looking at? Um, there was a couple I was looking at. I was looking at um, Columbia as well and I was looking at Princeton and then I was actually looking at a school called Eastern Michigan University as well. Um, there was another, there was a swimmer from my high school who was actually over there. Um, and so that's why I had a chat to their track team. And um, that actually ended up all right. They offered me partial athletic scholarship and partial academic scholarship. Right. Um, but the interesting thing for us was, by the end, it was the decision between Eastern Michigan or at the last minute the offer from Harvard came through. Um, but how it turned out is because Harvard was in the Ivy League and they do their need-based financial aid, mm. um, it still ended up being more affordable for me to go there. Um, yeah. So I guess that's a bit of a nuanced point for anyone listening in that, you know, say you had gone to Eastern Michigan um, yeah, you know, you're obviously going to weigh up the athletic scholarship element and the academic scholarship element. But yeah. at Harvard, with that need-based aid, not to not to put it bluntly, but if you were a lottery winner or a schoolionaire, um, 
you'd have to pay a bit more, right? <laughs> it would yeah. Be more difficult. You, you would pay your full price, but then it's um, – so basically the goal of the financial aid office there is to allow the students to graduate debt-free. So they will provide your family with enough aid such that you can pay your cost without taking out loans, essentially. Um, in our situation, um, it ended up being the best option for us financially um, even though on paper it's one of the most expensive schools. And that's because need-based aid has essentially got me a full ride, whereas other schools I would be fighting for partial scholarships or just under full scholarships and um, that sort of thing. When that offer came, Kyle, what was the first thing that went through your mind? Uh, it was a pretty crazy morning. I was actually lined up ready to go into my graduation ceremony from high school. <laughs> Um, and then they called me up and I ran out of the car park to take the call. Um, I was just blown away. Like, yeah, I didn't really know what to think. I was just kind of trying to grasp finishing high school, but then also this whole prospect of the next four years was in my face. So, so I guess, um, the, the thing we joked about a bit, um, offline was that, of the Ivy League schools and, you know, even schools outside of that, like a Stanford or something, there is obviously a probably like a pop culture reputation that comes with the schools. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, you've got two fellow Australians in uh, Alex Kalashnikov and Steph Ratcliffe on the track and field team. Yep. Um, We've also got uh, Noah Miles is another jumper as well. Ah, geez, yeah. full up with Aussies there. But I, I guess yeah. it would be really interesting to hear your take on, you know, you've got to move basically your whole life, you know, you've got academic stuff or, or whatever belongings you can pack. Um, but for you as an athlete as well, that's that's got to be a huge transition into a place where, you know, did you have any sort of trepidation heading in thinking, oh, how am I going to balance all these athletic and academic um, options as opposed to, you know, what it's turned out to be? Absolutely. I mean, even all of those things aside, the most daunting thing is just uprooting your life entirely and moving on to a new campus in a new country and not knowing a single person aside, say, the coach that I've met once before. And I think the advantage to going over there and then being part of an athletic team um, is you immediately have that kind of um, safety net, that sort of social structure around you. And, like, your teammates will become your friends instantly because you're spending hours a day with them. Um so I found like while it's obviously a very tough experience uprooting like that and moving, like being part of a team just makes the process so much easier. Um, so, Cole, did you find that you drifted into the culture fairly quickly and fairly seamlessly or were there any major issues that might have confronted you in the first couple of months? I mean, I, to this day I'm still um, getting called out on random Australian slang that I'll say and people don't understand it. I'm like, I actually didn't know that was slang. Um, like it's been a couple of years now and it's still happening. Um, well, you were a thought after Crocodile Dundee, they'd know all of our slang right now. <laughs> Obviously not. Yeah. And also um, first time I met my roommate, um, I just said a greeting to him. Like I can't remember what I said, but I ended up repeating myself about four times. And he was like, look, man, like I, I just don't know what you're saying. <laughs> that's a classic so i had to kind of learn to um enunciate a bit better um just try and speak a bit more clearly over there 
and I guess the you know the the minor speed bump um, you've had this year just in just in the form of a global pandemic. Um, yeah. How you know obviously the Ivy League was really interesting in that there's I guess for, for Tim as well there's there's been a pretty varied response. Would you say Kyle in terms of where sport sits and whether or not you know schools have pressed ahead with sport or not? But the Ivy League cancelled yeah. pretty early, didn't they? They did. So back in March. I believe early to mid March, um, they called everything off and they told all students on campus to go home. This is at I can speak to Harvard doing this. I'm not sure about the others. Sure. Um, but they followed soon after, I believe. Um, so I flew back home in March, um, and that was when the outdoor season was supposed to begin over there. Yep. And the NCAA has granted that season of eligibility back to its athletes. Um However, the Ivy League also has a rule that you have to use all of your seasons of eligibility as an undergrad. So if you wanted to use that um, extra season of eligibility, I couldn't do it as a postgrad at Harvard. I would have to um, do a master's or something at another non-Ivy League school to use that season. Sure. So where does that leave you at the moment? (laughs) So, well, at the moment, because I've opted to take a gap year at the moment, actually, um, and I decided not to continue um, my studies online for this year, um, I will be able to have two more years on campus when I eventually return and there will be normal seasons. And then I should still hold on to that extra post-grad season that I can use elsewhere if I want. What's the time frame on that, Kyle? When do you look to be going back to the States? Um, so at this stage, my gap year would end at the end of August and I should head back sort of early August, or sorry, end of August or early September. Um, but, of course, that's not set in stone. It would depend on the state of, you know, COVID-19 and, um, you know, the ability for the schools to open properly and have us competing. And, and I guess the... The, the balancing act that, you know, you've been doing between your academics and your athletics, um, you know, I guess have you found those same things in terms of, you know, when you signed up to go to the US, uh, I'd, I'd maybe assume that the part of that was the, you know, the depth in athletic competition plus sort of the opportunity to, to take your studies further. Um, how do you feel both of those categories have been advanced in, in spending time overseas? Yeah, I, I think the... Um... The massive advantage of competing at a one of these American colleges is just how integrated athletics is into the university. Um, so you know, I can be doing classes, you know, from say nine a.m. till two p.m. or something like that, and then it will just be like a five ten minute walk to the track, and away you go training. Um, and just because everything is so localized in that sense, it just allows you to just really maximize how productive you can be um and i think it it just really helps me to pursue what i want academically and still feel like i'm remaining competitive with athletics um i suppose yeah the contrast there too kyle you would have started a lot of your athletics by traveling to bendigo wouldn't you so from Shep yeah to bendigo, you know, so, a bit over an hour so yeah, so it was, it's 90 minutes each way. So I found every time I went to do a training session with the coach there or I was doing a shield competition, it was a three-hour round trip. And, you know, that's 
three hours less, you know, study, that's three hours less you might be working. And it's um, at a certain point you have to sacrifice something. Like um, if I were to be studying back home here as well, that would probably be study time that I'm sacrificing or maybe sleep, which is then sacrificing athletics um, indirectly. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's been the main advantage for me over there is just having everything localised together um, and just, yeah, not much of a commute. I saw, uh, Kyle, in, in doing a bit of research for the episode, it looks like you're studying uh, planetary sciences? Yeah, so my major is called History of Science and then my secondary or minor is the Earth and Planetary Sciences. Right, so I guess in, you know, uh, and I'm sure you, know, you, you're not, you might not have this stuff nailed down yet, but, you know, I guess in terms of very similar to anyone doing uni back in Australia, you know, you probably start undergrad and you have these grand plans or, or ideas you're pretty fixated on as to what you're going to do. Um, do you feel like that idea has changed a little bit or, or stayed relatively the same in, in the time you've been studying? Oh, my, my plan coming into and throughout college has been entirely malleable. Like it's been <laughs> constantly changing. Um, initially in high school, I was like, yeah, I want to be like an aerospace engineer or and coming into college, I was like, oh, I want to do physics research. Um, and then, you know, um, I, I think I've come to terms with the fact that I don't know what I want to be doing for the rest of my life and I'm happy to just keep exploring and, you know, pursuing the things that are interesting to me. Um, so at the moment I couldn't point out exactly what career I want to be doing out of college, but sure. I imagine it would be some somewhere in the sort of environmental science world or, yeah, something along those lines. Well, you're looking at a gap year at the moment, Carl. So how are you occupying yourself? Um, so at the moment I've been doing um, a few little odd jobs here and there. I've been, I've been doing some tiling, um, which has been a bit of fun. I've been doing just like, and then, you know, deliveries for like a restaurant, um, just odd jobs here and there to help sort of build back up funds for when I go back over to uni, just spending money. Um, and then I've been doing a lot of photography and filmmaking. Um, I've been just running like my own little side business called Murph's Media, um, where I've just been doing a bit of commercial photography, portraits, um, and video making. So that's all been keeping me real busy. Fairly active on YouTube as well? Um, not super active, but I've started uploading a few of my video making projects, um, just slowly coming out. Um, I have no particular um, aspiration to be like full-time on YouTube or anything, but um, I think when I make some sort of video content, I will upload it on there just it's easy to share it with people, I suppose. Um, but you never know. Like, I was thinking, Kyle, um, in the in the some of the uh, probably more entertaining state trips, or state team trips I'd I'd seen you on. Um, you know, you had always carried yourself as a as a relatively laid back guy. You know, you didn't seem too intense. Um, how, how was the transition from, um, I guess, living in a in a sort of regional centre and then going to somewhere that's obviously a much larger city? Was that also a consideration in sort of heading over there and, and just being curious as to how that would pan out? Oh, my goodness. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so one of my 
college visits was in New York City. Um, and that was just the most stressful experience of my life, let me tell you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not built for the city, I don't think. <laughs> but I found Boston um, as a city, which is where Harvard is located. I found that to be, you know, as far as cities go, for myself, quite livable and quite nice. Um, you know, being a very old city, it's, you know, it's really well built for, you know, foot traffic. It's really easy mm. to walk around and navigate. Um, and Harvard is located in the next suburb across called Cambridge. Um, sure. So it's a little less dense. Um, have have yeah. you immersed yourself in Boston culture like uh, the Patriots or the Celtics? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've <laughs> I've never been hardcore um, following all that. Like uh, a lot of my teammates will play there, you know, um, fantasy football league and all this sort of, th- sort of stuff. Um, but I've never really got right into that, but, you know, I enjoy a bit of the banter around it and sort of when people get excited about it, like it's good to be around that. Um, but yeah. I was, I was going to say, I had to throw it in there probably much to your frustration, but I feel like uh, of the Ivy League schools, you know, we, we sort of have almost like a, it's almost like a meme-like representation of what the academic difficulties would be like or, or on a positive note, you know, what the academic opportunities would be like. But have, yeah. have you had an experience there um, that I guess matched or, or in any way was, you know, how did that sort of line up with your expectations? Um, it's been unreal. Um, in terms of like the perceived difficulty of a place like Harvard, um, mm. I think it's as difficult as you want to make it. Um, and it can be as easy as you want to make it as well. But I find that just the, the character and the attitude of most of the students there is that they really want to get the most out of their experience so they will make their course loads quite challenging and they will to pull as much as they can out of it um so another experience i have had that has been really cool is just the accessibility of all of the professors um okay yeah because a lot of these professors that are teaching us like they they seem like these very kind of abstract high up figures that are doing such awesome work in their field and like you know it'd be terrifying to go talk to them but then you know you find you just you know walk up after class or you go to their office hours or whatever and you just have a chat to them and they're all like super friendly and willing to help and stuff um and i had this book um that i was reading by naomi oreskes who is a um professor in the history of science um and i was reading all about that i was like yeah this is really really cool um and there was also this like movie that she made or something like that and then i went into a new class for the semester and i looked at the professor i was like this person looks really familiar it was like a like a 15 person seminar it was like really small and i was like oh my god like that's the professor i was just like listening in to and reading about and yeah, that was just unreal. Being like a fifteen-person seminar, you get tons of like one-on-one dialogue with them. Mm. Um, so those sort of experiences, I think, really make it valuable. I, I guess not to um, not to forget. You know, you're also over there as someone who was a, a pretty handy uh, triple jumper, to put it lightly. Um, first of all, you know, how, how have you found the the coaching and the sort of competition, um, I guess, travel and everything over there and, and sort of how are you managing everything being back here for a year too? Mm. 
Um, the travel is grueling um, during the seasons. So almost it can be almost every weekend that you're on a plane or on a bus traveling interstate. Um, but it's for a good reason. So if you are performing at a certain level, um, I found the coaches are willing to take you to whatever meet you need to get the level of competition um, that you want. Um, but that does mean that, you know, you're doing readings and homework um, in the airport and all this sort of thing. Um, it can be pretty tough and you're competing very often as well. So there's a lot of toll on your body, um, but we spend a lot of time um, doing post-work recovery and that sort of thing um, to keep ourselves held together. And then when it does come to, you know, the big meets like conference championships or NCAAs, um, then we can really start to taper and um, peak for some good PBs. I know it's a fairly silly question, Cole, but are we going to see you in comp uh, any time over the um, you know the Australian summer, or is that something that's got to be a bit limited with your NCAA um, responsibilities? You will be actually. I actually competed in a AVSL round um, in Bendigo a few weeks ago. Um, and I'll be doing a few more of those throughout the summer and hopefully looking at, you know, states and nationals if they're going ahead. Um, but, yeah, I did have concerns initially about um, NCAA rules and representation rules and that sort of thing. Um, so what I've opted for is I signed up as, like, an independent club AV member. So I'm not representing any particular club at the moment. Um, and that avoids any complications with NCAA. That's probably a good tip, actually, for any of the other NCAA athletes who are in Australia currently. It can be done. Um, athletes Victoria are certainly facilitating that. And if in doubt, just get in touch with us and we can sort of smooth that process through if you do want to do some competition. It will be great to see you out there, uh, particularly. And as far as we know, look the way we're going at the moment, the states, nationals are all looking pretty damn good, aren't they, Sean? Yeah, in um, I guess most of the back and forth we get internally, it, it sort of looks, at, I guess, as positive, no, not to make a poor pun there, but um, positive in terms of athletic competition um, as could be. Um, I know speaking with the guys and girls up in New South Wales as well, things are sort of ticking along nicely in terms of return to sport and there's some more stuff that will sort of roll in on, on January 1 as well. So, yeah, I think we've got um, a small handful of college athletes that will stay back and, yeah, having having known a few of those other college athletes who you know kept doing classes or or are going to head back shortly, yeah, I, I almost feel like Kyle's made the best choice in that. Um, the other guest we're looking to get on, Archie Wallace, who's from Bendigo, he uh, he took a rain check on this morning's podcast to reschedule for tomorrow because he was up until four a.m. doing a class because uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like there's much uh, accommodation for the time difference. <laughs> no, the time difference is extremely tough. That. They've been doing like I found um, some classes will be recorded and then you can watch them after the fact. But um, there are some classes that will just require everyone be there in person or not in person, but like live. So it can be fairly unforgiving for the Aussies. Yeah, it certainly can. Now, you've been with Brett Gilligan in Bendigo. You've also had influence from Kathy Woodruff and Elwyn Jones. What's the, the current structure for you now that you're back home? Who are you? And you've got your, your coach, obviously, at, at Harvard. What's the what's the way it's moving forward right now, Kyle? Yeah, so 
with my coach um, Mark Manchicotti at Harvard, um, our correspondence is actually fairly limited because of more NCAA rules uh, restrict how much talk we can have while I'm on leave because I'm not technically enrolled right now. Um, so there's still like we'll still correspond to the level that we can, um, but not as much as we'd like, obviously. And um, Brett Gilligan from Bendigo um, isn't currently coaching at the moment. Um, but I've gone and I've started doing a couple of sessions here and there in Essendon um, with Owen Jones's group, um, which is a really good squad of boys, really good triple jumpers and stuff. So looking forward to doing a few more sessions with those guys. Yeah, well, some interesting characters in Owen's squad, that's for sure. It must be, you know, that's something you would be looking Absolutely. forward to, making the trip down. Yeah, so I'm thinking at the moment of maybe just doing that sort of once a week or maybe once a fortnight um, just to kind of start immersing myself again with a group of people who, you know, do and enjoy athletics um, because it can be pretty tricky here um, to keep a level of accountability for myself um, because coming from the full team structure back at Harvard to now coming back home and having, you know, zero structure or team or coach or anything um, can be pretty tough to motivate yourself. So that's why I'm and you, to It's get a very involved. technical event too. So, yeah, you do need the eyes on you, don't you? It's, you know, you, it's, you know, you know, Sean and I are very comfortable with distance running and you can just go out and play other miles. But for a jumper, it is very specific and, and also preparation for a competition season uh, is very, very different to what, you know, a lot of us are used to. So you have to be yourself in the right position. But then, as I'm saying, getting the eyes on you to make sure that the technical side's going well as well. Absolutely. Um, I've gotten very accustomed to getting video footage of jumps and being able to send footage to whichever coach online. But it really helps to just actually have some eyes there on the day to help you pick up on things that you're doing live and it just makes the sessions so much more productive. Well, on behalf of everyone in the Victorian Athletic Fraternity, Kyle, we do wish you really well. And actually, I'm a bit excited to get out and see you at championships. And Sean, I think you would echo echo those thoughts, wouldn't you, given you know Kyle quite well? Yeah, no, it's, it's always good seeing um, you know, those younger athletes on the state team, whether they're studying you know, here or overseas to, to you know, most importantly, remain in the sport. Um, but Cole's also been handy in, you know, accidentally dishing us some good footage of, uh, Shepparton, uh, the new track up there as well. So the, the, the videography has made a, made a couple of, um, appearances on the AV socials, but, um, you know, I just, I just want to say from everyone here, um, really appreciate Cole, um, giving us the time today to have a bit of a chat in, in what can at times be a bit of a, a misunderstood pathway, but, um, yeah, hopefully this episode gives everyone a, a bit more of an insight of some of the ups and downs and, um, yeah, how, how it all works. Yeah, I certainly mirror those thoughts. So, Kyle Murphy, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Welcome, Archie Wallace. So, currently back in Bendigo, but studying at Wake Forest University. You're keeping your scholastic ambitions going in the States. Uh, probably a bit of an odd year for you, isn't it, Archie? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very, very abnormal year so far, for sure. Yeah. Uh, obviously, yeah, I've been at home during the pandemic and uh, just ha- completed my semester uh, going into Christmas now online. So I had to do some some late night classes 
Uh, but very happy to be done. Can uh, focus a little bit more on my running now, which is very exciting. So how did you sort of, you know, drift into that cycle? Because I can imagine with the time difference to the States, you would have had some obscenely late nights or early mornings. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. I think my university was very accommodating. Uh, we do have lots of international athletes, not just in sort of track and field athletics, but also in other sports. Uh, so my professors and teachers were really accommodating with sort of being able to record the lectures that I could watch the next day, for example, and sort of give me some leeway in submitting things a, a day or two later so I can catch up on things I might have missed the night before. But in saying that, there are a couple of things like my lab class in physics that I needed to attend in person. Uh, so sometimes I have to be up between three and four, uh, two or three nights a week. But for the most part, it was, I, I, I think it was made a lot easier by the university, which was which was excellent. In our chat with Kyle, he took that decision to you know, have the gap year. Did that enter into your mind at all, or you just thought, no, I'm just going to soldier on with this with the degree and just keep the scholastic stuff going? Yeah, um, uh, it's a good question. Uh, at the start, when I first started the semester, I wasn't really aware of how difficult it was going to be. Um, I think. Looking back, I think I wish I had taken a semester off just so I could have maybe focused more on just the, my mental health, really, um, seeing lots of friends in Australia, doing lots of running. Uh, I think sort of being – because doing the classes online has sort of forced me to stay in Bendigo, uh, stay at home. So that isolation by myself for such a long period of time was pretty pretty difficult on um, my, my mental health, I think. Uh so I think if I did my time again, I would have liked to have taken the the gap semester. But I'm now that I'm done, um, I'm I'm glad that I sort of didn't fall behind in my in my degree, and I can graduate on time, hopefully. Yeah, you've got it in the back pocket now. But you know, just talking on those whole mental health things, yeah, you know, being in Bendigo is was you know uh, by degrees a bit better than being in Melbourne because of the more harsh lockdowns. But what were your sort of coping mechanisms uh, getting through because you still were working and and living and training under restrictions. Yeah, um, so I love Bendigo. Love obviously being home with my family. Um, I just like to reiterate that. But I know many people. So most of my friends that I grew up with were in Melbourne that whole time, really. So I wasn't under any restrictions myself. But I mean, if I was going to go out and do anything, like go to go to a coffee shop, go to the park, and I'd either be by myself or with just a member of my immediate family. Uh, so I wasn't restricted to going within like five k's of my house. Um, so obviously that was really convenient for running purposes. Um, everything outside of that, really, I, I did feel very isolated. So okay, to um, provide a little bit of context for people who might not know you, um, as well as Tim and myself, Archie, um, you know, in, in, you know, obviously, I guess if you could elaborate a little bit on, you know, I guess those couple of lives you've got in the sense that, you know, you went to high school in Melbourne, um, you boarded down in Melbourne, you know, you, you've uh, had a bit of a long career of transiting back and forth from Bendigo for things and, you know, now you've sort of got that third life as well in um, in the US. So where, where did things really start off um, down in Melbourne? Yeah, so so I went, always lived in Bendigo, um, primary school in Bendigo, year seven and eight in Bendigo, uh, started started in Scotch, Scotch College in year nine. Um, so in terms of running life, that's where I really sort of started 
uh, end of that APS season, year nine. Um, so I went met, met Whippy actually, uh, Whippy and Michael Jones, uh, coach of Scotch. And from there, it sort of took off. So that's why I have that sort of double life between Bendigo and Melbourne. Um, but really, yeah, so my whole running, my whole running life was really sort of kicked off at Scotch in year nine and taken from there. So I don't really tie any sort of running to being in Bendigo. I don't really know many people that run in Bendigo. Um, pretty much Whippy and my friends at Scotch were my main, main upbringing really when it came to running. So, Yeah, so Crosby, we had uh, Michael Jones, whose dad I think was actually president of AV4. Yep. Um, Ian Jones, the, the, the great Ian Jones. Yeah, World Cross Country uh, representative. Um, yep. But, yeah, so so Jonesy, as we call him down at, at Scotch, um, he was sort of in charge of the middle distance group for the summer after season in APS, which is a, a pretty big time for those boys in that it's about nine weeks and, you know, a lot of those kids, whether they're much younger or those U12s, you know, they, they want to kind of make that APS team. So that's, I guess, the the mindset that a lot of those kids start off with. Um, and we were probably fortunate enough to, you know, you get new kids that come down every week and they have these informal sort of Saturday meets, um, at, usually at Box Hill or, or just, you know, it depends where your school's located geographically, but they're, they're sort of hand-timed and, you know, you just chuck a bunch of kids in whichever heat it is and say, yep, try the 100 today, do the long jump, do the 800, you know, whatever it is. And we had this probably 15-year-old kid from the boarding house who turned up in a pair of tennis shoes and probably in the sea heat of the 800, sailed out in about 56 seconds for the first lap. And um, I think Jones, you know, was sitting there at about 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, sort of bleary-eyed drinking coffee and just holding stopwatches. And Jones, he said, oh, I want to have a look at this. And um, that was young Archie hurling himself around the track. And I think he ended up running about 2.12 on the day. But, um, you know, was was down to sort of sub two by the end of the season and, and it was sort of that quick pathway to, to nationals and everything. And then it took us a few years to, to nag him into doing a cross-country season, but um, things sort of took off from there. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty good story too. Interesting what you're saying about Bendigo, Archie, because we're, we're starting to sort of thra- phrase Bendigo as the new Ballarat. The running culture in Bendigo is just going gangbusters at the moment and, you know, Andy Buchanan and people like that are really leading the way. So have you done any of the pack runs or the group runs with those guys? Uh, I haven't really. Um, I think if there was more of a normal season, I would have sort of spent more time around other people and competing, performing with just the locals a bit more. Um, but I definitely know um, I've been – I spent a lot of time running sort of around the ovals in town. I, I know like a lot of faces now. There's always people around doing runs and it's excellent to see because uh, you're, you're right, there are some great up-and-coming up and coming runners in Bendigo, so it's really, really good to see. Uh, yeah, it certainly is. Yeah, it's a shame we didn't get to have a little bit more of a normal cross-country season because I think if we did, I would have been able to sort of interact with a few more people. Um, yeah, and it's just also broadening your networks within your own hometown and, and those networks now are becoming very, very strong. So mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah definitely a developing scene, isn't it, Sean? Well, I guess that was always the interesting thing in, in coaching at Scotch. Like I'd, I'd coached a little bit before then at Melbourne High, but I hadn't really coached somewhere where there was like a, a program per se or there was like really regular training times and, you know, you'd be on campus and that sort of thing. So, you know, what started off as a, a bit of a cushy, you know, uni part-time job, um, you know, you, you ended up getting to know these kids, you know, through their sport a lot and, and that obviously from the boarding house as well. 
the boarding house is this really broad group of kids, a lot of whom are from country and, and regional Victoria or, or even more regional parts of Australia. Um, and I think like the, the, the biggest group there from Daniloquin or something like that. So, you know, a, a lot of these kids you bump into um, will have really interesting sporting experiences too in that they might have never done athletics or never done tennis or soccer or hockey or whatever it is. But because of that APS sport rotation, they sort of just get chucked in with, you know, what their mates are doing and that sort of thing. And every so often, you know, you get some pretty handy kids. I know, um, you know, one of the guys that came through with Archie or a couple of them were, you know, Ed Beicher and um, Harry Carr who, who trained with Dave Lightfoot um, and who are, you know, both sub-350 guys in their own right as well. And, you know, Tony Crawford was there just before Archie and, and Will Meggett um, and James Wiseman. So, and probably the Anderson brothers as well were, were pretty handy and even Jack Sinclair who plays with St Kilda these days. So we, we had some funny kids come through that, you know, would sort of just put their hand up to try and make like a 4 by 8 team or, or just wanted to be part of that group. Um, and it ended up being quite strong runners. But I think the funniest thing with Archie was trying to convince his parents that he might have been a little bit better at running than he was at tennis. Um, his, his grandparents and his parents would always tell us on the weekends at these events that, you know, he was, he was a really keen tennis player and then he wasn't sure if he could give up winter uh, and soccer as well. I think he was in like the bees or something. And um, I think that the year, I think it might have been 20, 2016, I think, um, I don't know Archie will correct me, but there was a year where basically he did a winter with the group and went from sort of one fifty four odd to one forty nine, um, and it was a it was a pretty handy race up with Christian Davis in in Canberra, um, and then I think Jones and I were able to sell Archie a bit more on the the tenets of uh, cross country running, which he was awful at to begin with, but. Um, you know, it was always that 800 kid who'd go out like a, you know, there was a free pack of chips on and um, you'd see him coming around on the second lap regretting everything he'd done on the first lap. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny little breeding ground for, for middle-distance talent. Um, it's it's a necessary evil though, isn't it? And then, look, Archie, I'm in your camp here totally. I, I used to hate cross-country and wasn't very good at it. But uh, as a middle-distance runner, you just had to put yourself through the pain because you know that the, the, the gains from it through the strength is, you know, that's what Whippy's saying, that last you do then have your last 200 or your last lap. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think 800 is a little bit of a, a blurry area. I think 1,500 is rather essential to do lots of cross country, of course, but 800, it's like I've sort of got the mindset now that I've been, I've been told that if you aren't really capable of running sort of that 45 second 400, then like where, where are you going to get your, your great 800 performance from, you know, like all the, some of the best runners in the world right now, like if you look at uh, Bosse, uh, Nick Simmons, all those sort of runners, they they haven't got the greatest leg speed, but it's, it's, it's clear that they've put a lot of, a lot of effort into sort of, um, improving their cross country ability, because uh, if yeah, if you can't really run sub forty seven pretty comfortably in the four hundred, then it's it's pretty essential that you sort of build that strength. Because yeah, there's two sides. Like you look at some of the great runners, like Sebastian Coe. Like, of course, he was amazing leg speed, but he he, he came from a, a very long distance background when he was a kid, and I think that's part of the reason why he was able to be so good when he was sort of in his prime in his career. Yeah. Yes. I think it probably begs for a little bit of analysis, doesn't it, Sean? Because when you start to conceptualise the Australian 800-metre specialist, there's probably a bit of a, a dividing line between those that do do a cross-country season or a portion thereof and those who just don't touch it at all. 
Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that, it makes for a sort of an interesting conversation, you know, because I know that a lot of Justin's, uh, Justin Rinaldi's guys don't really do a lot of cross. Yeah. But, uh, I guess others might. I'm, I'm horribly biased and, you know, having coached Archie when, when he was at Scotch, but it was one of the cool parts of that APS sort of group in that you'd see these kids sort of two, three times a week and for some of those kids that were very new, um, you know, Archie had some good mates there who when he joined cross country or when he joined, you know, doing the ath stuff more often, they were very into running. So they'd sort of try and, you know, I guess give him a bit of a historical education on each event. Um and I know Archie had one mate, Charlie Schilling, who was a, a massive student of the sport and, and had made some Victorian teams as well um, and probably had a pretty big influence on, you know, how hooked Archie became on whichever event it was. Um, and I guess on the cross-country front, um, yeah, you're definitely right in that we've got a split in, say, you know, I know Joe Dang and, and Peter Bowl did do cross-country in high school um, but, you know, weren't exactly putting their hands up to do you know, say a 10K or a 12K cross, whereas someone like a Luke Matthews or a Jeff Risley um, have definitely got that ability to run a fair bit better over, say, 3K or even even 5K on the track. Um, so they're, they're, you know, attacking the 800 from a bit of a different angle. But I guess not to veer too off topic, um, Archie, when did, I guess for you, you know, you've, you've been one of those kids who's been through the, you know, you, you develop each year at an event, and then someone tells you that there is an event that's after nationals that you might be eyeing off. So how, how did that sort of process work for you in, in finding out about, you know, world under 20s and, and how did that play into, I guess, eventually where you ended up in the NCAA? Yeah. Um, so I suppose it all began after that that 149 race you mentioned earlier, um, post-cross-country season in Canberra. Um, I was still pretty young then, so that was still sort of a year and a half out from next qualifying time, like next qualifying time for World Juniors. But sort of for that next next period in my running, the next 18 months, that was always sort of in the back of my mind. Um, but I sort of 18 months is a long time to sort of strive for something. You know, you kind of just keep ticking away. Uh, I think it was more I got invited to a camp with Whippy Um sort of a year later. So this was 2017, early 2017, Whippy and I went to a, a camp in Canberra and that was sort of around a lot of other people that were sort of expected to get expected to qualify for World Under 20s. Um, Whippy and I know that camp didn't go ideally, but what reasons of ourself, I, I hurt myself, which was fine. Um, but sort of at that time I was looking around, like all these athletes around me are amazing. So I think that was really a, a defining moment um, for me, um, seeing myself being selected for a camp that was around athletes that I sort of idolised at the time. Uh, and I think, I don't know, I always had people in my in my corner, so Whippy, Jonesy, as we mentioned, uh, other people that I ran with sort of feeding me positive uh, feedback saying, oh, you can, you can make World Juniors, you can do all these sort of things. And... Uh, I love to really, really think hard about things and kind of make it uh, more difficult than it used to be. But um, yeah, Whippy was coaching me at the time, and he sort of signed, he signed me up for races um, all around. He signed me up for one in Canberra. He signed me up for one in the Gold Coast. Uh, in the Gold Coast, I think that's when I qualified. Uh, I got dragged through behind Brad Mathis and a couple other guys. Uh, <laughs> not to not to interject, but I think uh, Tim Archie uh, is a pretty self-deprecating kid, even though he's. Um, very introspective at times. Um, 
the I think one of the interesting things I guess I got in being a really young coach at the time and you know Archie you know probably being the best kid we'd had at Scotch in terms of just making a jump forward like we'd had some really good 800 guys before but you know Jonesy and I well Jonesy would sort of say to me look you know this this could be a little bit different this one like we, we might need to put some more thought into this um but it was interesting you know that that I guess thought of what world under 20s is before you go or, or before you see an athlete it sounds bad but yeah for the kids where it's not they're just popping out a qualifier every single week and it's really natural you see how it does great on them a little bit and, and as much as you as a coach try and say oh don't worry about it like you know it's you know it's plenty of races or you've got plenty of time to think about this or do that or you, know, you try and play down it's how often it's mentioned like I know Archie and I sort of agreed after a certain point in the season it just it just wouldn't really be mentioned you know it was more just focusing on race to race but um Archie got himself in a little bit of a bind in that he had a really good winter and then he had um that camp at the AIS he ran a little bit fast on a rep um and twin twinged his his hammy a bit much to Kev Craigie's um I don't know. He just looked at me like I was a bit of an idiot, and I was like, "Oh well, you know." I told him to run this time, but he ran about three seconds faster. So, oh well. Um, and it sort of got to this. I remember the, the first mate was the Vic Milers mate, where it was pouring rain, and there was thunder, and the races got delayed, and people were sort of putting tracksuit pants on and off. And you know, I know Archie was probably a bit more stressed than he was letting on, but it was it was this thought of, okay, winter's gone so well. Surely I can just knock this qualifier out at the first go, um, and I think he went really close. I think it was it was like a sub one fifty one opener, so things seemed pretty good. Um, Lockie Raper, who it was in New South Wales, and Archie ended up being on the team with, um, was in the race as well, and it was sort of the first time I think they'd raced each other outside of say nationals. But you could see as a coach how it kind of built up the pressure on the kids who were very close a lot, which was kind of Archie's situation. Um, and, yeah, they came after this race in Canberra that didn't go so well. Um, Athletics Australia were kind of like, oh, well, surely you're going to send him to nationals. You know, he'll, he'll run open nationals up on the Gold Coast. And I said, oh, look, you know, I don't want to be one of those coaches that's just putting a kid into a race every single weekend just to chase this time. Um, so, I, you know, it's weird asking a maybe freshly 18-year-old who's, you know, a, a bit stressed saying, oh, you, you know, you can do the race in the Gold Coast, but only if you really want to. Like, you know, it's, it's up to you. And Archie, to his credit, you know, sort of took full responsibility and said, yep, I'm going to do that. Went up and, uh, yeah, fortunately, a guy who he ended up doing a bit of training with down the line, Brad Mathis, um, stacked at about 200 metres pretty spectacularly, got up within about three strides and, yeah, kept the pace very healthy. Um, and, yeah, Archie sort of got the time for it under 20s and it was a bit of a weight off his shoulders. <laughs> I've seen it over and over again over the years that um, chasing those times becomes a massive weight on the back of these kids because mm. they're going into each event. They're just too worried about splits. Um, yeah. you know, they've got coaches talking it up and all those sort of things. And yeah, to me, often it's just try and just let it happen. Um, you know, don't, don't, you know, just get too caught up in that moment of I've got to get this time if I want to you know often your best performances come when you you're going in with those lowered expectations that's just my observation yeah. over the years and I've seen some kids actually wrecked um, in that effort to get to world under 20s and you never see them again as an adult they, they just go on that that campaign just kills them because there's just too much of a weight of expectation so fortunately with Archie we you got him there and he's still going and he had a <laughs> you know and the the 
moving to Wake Forest, Archie, must have been just a, a really nice way to just add to your career, go away for the education and experience a hell of a lot of new, you know, great experiences in the US, apart from, you know, the COVID-riddled US that it is at the moment. But, uh, but how, you know, what was that transition like moving away from Australia, from Bendigo, from Scotch, going to, to Wake Forest and going into part of a, a very professional program? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't think it's a surprise to many people that know me, but I, I'm not the best at, at my studies. Um, I, I have sort of gotten by, you know, kind of gotten the, the marks that I need, but I'm not very good at applying myself, uh, balancing with the running especially. Uh, so Whippy, who was coaching me at the time, thought it was a great idea to sort of reach out to a couple of universities, um, and we, we heard that from a couple. Uh, so it was really Whippy that initiated that. Um, which was excellent. Uh, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but anyway, I think that the reason that I decided to go in the end was I think the American University uh, Wake Forest was a great or perfect for me in terms of being able to balance running at a high level, but also academics. Because uh, I know that I it, it can be done, of course, going to Mel- uh, university in sort of Melbourne uh, or Sydney, wherever you're at. But I think that the academics is very separated from the running. Um, the running is very separated from the academics at universities in Australia, which is which is fine if you're great at applying yourself. But for me personally, I thought that it was a perfect opportunity to get a sort of best mix of both worlds um, in going to university in America um, alongside and a pretty once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, really. Um, I was sort of blessed to be able to get into a university based on how well I could run and not necessarily the uh, the grades that I got. Um, which was very fortunate for me. Um, I'm very grateful for that. And it's, it's worked out amazingly so far. Uh, I'm sure it's going to continue to progress well. But, yeah, really, it's, it's, just, it, it's pretty much everything I thought it was going to be in terms of being able to focus on my running with great coaching staff around me in um, Andrew Ferris and John Hayes. Um, but also I'm currently doing physics, and I think that my professors and teachers – like I mentioned earlier, very accommodating with all the running I'm doing. Um, so I'm glad that I got a bit of push from Whip um, when I was still in Australia to, to, to go do that because I think it's it's worked out really well. Ah. Well, I, I think the, the bit you, you skip over there as well, Arch, is um, I know, you know, your discussions with your parents and stuff were obviously around, and this isn't to say you did badly in year 12, I won't throw you on the bus, but it wasn't like you had limited options for the uni. <laughs> You know, you had you had some pretty good stuff lined up, but I think it was more like, yeah, you you um maybe weren't the most studious of individuals in year twelve, um, and were a little bit disorganised. But there was this time period where I think Archie's parents recommended he get a job, and um, this was going to be an interesting test of you know um, running, you know, doing a bit of work, and this wasn't even throwing in study. Um, and where where did you briefly get a job, Archie? <laughs> I got a job at a local agent finder. It's a um, call center. Yeah, real real estate. So it's sort of recommending housing agents to people looking to sell. And uh, how'd that go with your running and your your life? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was full time, uh, so it was pretty pretty difficult to manage the running side of things. I was either running really early in the morning or really late in the afternoon, in the evening, and I mean, I'm sure it's manageable for a lot of people, but for me, being fresh out of school, that was the, the hardest thing in the world to sort of cope with. Uh, and that was right in the thick of trying to run some World Junior Times. Uh, so 
no, surprisingly, I uh, I didn't 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 survive in the job for too long. So. Yeah, so I had this, you know, this eighteen-year-old asking me, "Oh my god, I can't work. How am I going to manage uni, running, and probably a part-time job if I live on campus down in Melbourne?" And I, you know, I'd had a couple of mates go to college um, and thought, "Well, let's at least do a little bit of research," um, and you know ping off a few emails and, and sort of see what happens because, um, you know, my, my main concern was that it was going to be so much to juggle that, you know, it might be, well, it was just a question of whether or not, not Archie was going to stay in the sport. And I just thought, well, look, if, you know, this kid is really passionate about his running um, and he's relatively new to the sport at a high level, what's going to give him the most time to sort of focus on his running and if running doesn't end up being the thing for him, how does he get an education to sort of come out of that as well and, and sort of, you know, not have a, a massive sort of debt looming over his head either. So um, fortunately enough, you know, there are a few schools that were interested and a few had a, a chat to Archie at, you know, nationals that year and over email and all those sorts of things. And um, I think one of the big factors as well, Archie, was that they Wake Forest had a decent record with 800 meter guys as well, and that they had Robert Heppenstall at the time, who was a was a 146 guy. So my thought was, you know, whilst Justin's group was in Melbourne and Archie had mixed in a bit with them over the sort of off season, you know, those guys were pretty full time, and and that was going to be a really big jump to make. But maybe if you know Archie was in a bit more of a, a collegiate sort of atmosphere, he'd have someone to learn from who was faster and and still sort of be able to settle into the program and and do a lot of training. Yeah, you mentioned Andrew Ferris too, who is an Australian, uh, you know, from Sydney and was at the Knox School. How much of of Andrew being there was an influence for you going to Wake Forest? Was that part of the decision-making process? Uh, it was, definitely. Um, so both coaching staff, Hayes and Ferris, were very compelling for me. Um, so Ferris, I don't know if Whippy remembers this, but Whippy and I went out for dinner with Ferris actually sort of probably in the January or February before I went that August. And he was just just a great guy, really. Like his sort of background was very similar to me in a sense. Um, so obviously he's an Australian. Um, he's just very passionate. He was very sort of caring and compelling. And I say really what I wanted in a coach, you know. Um, so obviously I'd come from a, a background in school where my coaches are always very invested in things outside of my running as well. And that's especially that's definitely what Andrew Ferris was. Um, cause I'd always heard stories about people sort of being neglected by their coaches when they get over to America, sort of all these scary cases where they get overtrained. Um, I, I don't see that much of that happening personally. Um, but it was definitely, definitely comforting to sort of meet, um, Ferris in person. I think that made a pretty good impact on sort of my opinions on the coaches over there and what would happen if I went over there. Uh, but so drifting into the Wake Forest, sort of the squad, the grouping, the coaching environment wasn't a big issue for you. You just found that that came quite naturally. Yeah, yeah. I think that was – I don't think there was any anything wrong with really the, the Wake Forest environment. That was – I don't think – I think the challenges that I had were just challenges anyone would have really just by leaving your country, going overseas, um, living by yourself amongst new people. but. In terms of Wake Forest itself, it sort of gave me everything that I needed with other Australians on the team, which was really helpful, amazing coaches. Uh, it was a very small university, so it seemed very community-like in a way. Uh, so I think Wake really 
delivered on my expectations in pretty much all the senses that I was looking for. Where's it actually located? Uh, it's located in North Carolina, uh, Winston-Salem. It's sort of near Raleigh and Charlotte. Cool. Yeah, and I guess that was that other part of it actually was, you know, your parents were obviously pretty new to the sport as well. Um, and did that academic factor play into, you know, how, I guess, how sort of approving they were of, of the idea? Yeah. Uh, so, well, I, I'd gotten into um, science at Melbourne, which is sort of a nice course that I wanted to do, um, but it wasn't something I was entirely invested in. And I think they knew that um, it was sort of just doing a course for the sake of doing a course really. And I think they, they were on board with the idea of me sort of going to America and sort of, so the way the university works over there with academics is you take two rather broad years early on. Um, it's sort of like school in a way. And then you decide what you want to major in, in your mm-hmm. third I think mum and dad really sort of jumped at the idea of like a fresh start, um, me taking fresh classes um, as soon as I get there and I can pretty much choose to major in whatever I want. And I think that that was compelling to them because so, the, yeah, the way you, University of America works is you sort of your scores in high school sort of determine which university you go to, but they don't necessarily determine what you study. So I think mum and dad were happy with in the sense that I'm going to a pretty well well-founded university in terms of academics um, and I can sort of make my own way, make my own path and have a fresh start really. So I think they were. Yeah, so Crosby, it was interesting. We were talking with Kyle Murphy the other day, you know, about getting into Harvard and and that sort of thing. And I remember one of the schools Archie had been talking back and forth with was um, was Princeton Um, and and that was where I guess the SAT stuff came in in that, you know, Archie's a guy that's always been very math science. and I think that helped him a lot in that he scored, you know, really well in the SAT. But, you know, I think with Princeton, it was obviously that financial juggle mixed in with um, a, a really, really high SAT score that I think they were going to need. Um, and actually, to be fair, it was like pretty much on it. But I think, yeah, the, the finance aspect came into it a bit more. Um, but I think the the cool thing with Wake Forest is, you know, they are sort of still ranked pretty regularly inside that sort of top 30, top 25 sort of national universities in the US as well. Um, and I just remember it was funny as a coach at the time because Ferris had definitely taken advantage of some Aussie connections and had signed up a bunch of people. Um, and it was, you know, not to speak out of turn, but it was interesting that there was a certain opinion of the school maybe two years ago. And there's a, I feel like there's a pretty different one now. Um, in terms of, you know, some of the success the, the newer crop of, of Aussies have had there. Um, so, I- Well, Facciani's one in, a case in point, isn't he? We talked about him in the last podcast, how he just obliterated a very good field in Sydney not long ago. So, yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah I think Mr. Ferris is working some magic there at the moment. Well, yeah, and I think, um, and not to poop on Ferris, he, he won't mind me saying, um, one of the big draw cards was John Hayes in the sense that he'd worked previously at, at big unis like I think um, NAU and, and Texas and stuff and he'd coached, you know, Leo Manzano at times and, and Lopez Lemong and sort of helped me out, he, like coached him at a developmental stage. So, you know, I knew with Archie running sort of 50, 60K a week, um, there was going to come a time where he was A, going to have to run a little bit more, but B, you know, Archie had expressed the same concerns that he didn't want to go over there and start running, you know, 160Ks a week, week one. Um, and yeah, massive credit to the, the coaching team there. They were very gentle on him in the first year. Um, and then, you know, introduced him to probably what is a, a really different style of training 
now. Um, and I think the coolest thing to see in Archie's visits back um, for a guy that was probably a bit frustrated in that first year um, athletically, um, I've noticed in in the couple of times we've caught up when he's come back, um, you know, he seems to have a bit of a new lease on running, I guess you'd say. What what did you, um, I guess, what have you taken away, Arch, from the, I guess, the development in your training over the last 12 months? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, so Ferris is sort of the one that manages me the most out of Hayes and Ferris and he's got a, he's, he has very different sort of style to what I'm used to. Um, definitely not in a bad way at all. I think that uh, Ferris's philosophy is that it, it doesn't take your body much time to sort of get the speed in your legs, sort of pump out a few hard lactic efforts um, in the weeks, maybe month before you're really trying to get um, into your best shape. Um, so at the moment, really, I'm not looking to race for a couple of months and I'm, I've really just been doing just strength work and strength work and strength work. And I think that not only does that make me really strong, it also sort of lets me take a step back from the the grind and the gruel of sort of having to always think about um, being on a track and competing and preparing for your races. But I think that especially last year, I haven't really seen it as much as you because I've had the opportunity, but I was very strong and it doesn't take very much time to sort of sharpen up. Um, so right now I'm sort of doing probably a hundred Ks a week, um, which is almost like 30, 40 Ks more than I was doing in high school, but it's, a lot of it's sort of very manageable work. Um, so I only really do two sessions a week right now, um, which are really difficult, but the rest of the running is really just like just t- teaching my body to sort of get some miles in the legs, just move oxygen around, just really easy. And I think it, uh, my body's really reacted well to it. Because um, like I mentioned earlier, like I don't have that 45-second pace of a 400. So either I get strong um, or I sort of step down and try and just – just pump out some really shorter things. So I think Ferris has really taken that um, idea really well, um, given me some more running and sort of tried to make me really strong. I think my body's adapted really well to it. Does it surprise you, Archie, how simple that formula is, though, that, you know, that it isn't complex, is it? The the conditioning of a middle-distance athlete isn't rocket science, basically, <laughs> and there's probably more easier type work than a lot of people might uh, imagine there is. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um... Yeah, no, it is. Uh, I think it's it's funny because I uh, I've actually been coaching my dad a little bit, um, doing some things, and like it's I might be qualified. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I've been telling him to do similar things to what I've been doing, and it was only really then that I'm like, oh, like it's it's pretty simple, like sort of just stacking days on days of just like just like just quality work that doesn't really break your body because it's, it's not necessarily about the hard days, the hard train days, it's really the how well your body can recover and move on to the next one, you know, so. Yep, adaptation. Although yeah, the, funny, the funny thing, Crosby, was that I did feel for Archie a bit in high school in that in the sort of APS slash, you know, schools, nationals slash world under 20s cycle, you, yeah, you didn't really have a great deal of time to just, I guess, tone things down a lot once track season hit. Because, you know, if you're a, a high school kid, it's not as if you can sort of just tell your school, oh, I'm just going to skip APS because, you know, the meet is usually in October, but kids start, you know, getting back on the track in August. So I know a lot of high school coaches will reflect that, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a management job in terms of not burning kids out. But, you know, we also had this kid at Scotch who was very new 
Um, so we didn't, yeah, I, I'd admit I didn't really know how much new stuff I could add in all at once. So, yeah, we probably kept Archie's training very light on. Well, I think the answer to that question, Sean, is you couldn't add too much in or else you would have had a broken athlete very quickly. So I think the management, yeah. and if Archie's doing 50 or 60K a week and getting those results, uh, you couldn't have done a hell of a lot more because going to 80, 90, 100 might have been the end of him and we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Yeah, I think on the athletic side as well, one of the big factors that played into thinking about the US even initially was thinking about that progression, especially for 800 guys in Australia, in that, you know, I guess um, maybe someone like, uh, you know, Jack Lund's a good example in that he's made a very big jump very quickly, but not every high school 800 guy is ready at that stage straight out of high school. So if you're sort of like a 149 guy, you know, you might not necessarily get a sort of direct walk-up start at, you know, a Sydney Track Classic or something. Um, so in, in talking to Archie about that, it was like, okay, well, you, you'd have to spend a bit of time getting your PB down and, you know, you'd be living down here in Melbourne and sort of juggling all that stuff. And, you know, it, it wasn't quite that simple, but it was more, uh, you know, would there be more time for you to sort of develop and, you know, experience some depth um, over in the US and just sort of get used to racing as opposed to time trialing um, all the time. So I think from a coaching standpoint, it was pretty, um, it was pretty enticing to, you know, definitely not hand off hand, hand this kid over, but it was more thinking, you know, would this keep him in the sport? You know, would this be something where he'd have new challenges and, and new people to race instead of being in that same sort of Aussie environment trying to get down to, you know, a 147 or a 146 to try and be a more regular starter and I guess be, I don't know, almost too athletically focused. Like I, I think that's the bias you get of being a coach of someone from when they're quite young, you sort of hope that they'll have a chance to like grow up a bit as well, like not. Yeah, well, it's it's holistic management, Sean, and, and I think you know all coaches. You know, majority of our coaches, I think, are very good at it, and uh, and it is one of the critical things that if you are going to be embarking on coaching, you, you know, we talk a lot about this when we're educating coaches. It's, <clears> it's not just about performances, time splits. It's about people and uh, understanding people and trying to get the best out of that person for their life, not just their athletic life. And I think with Archie, we're seeing that there's that shaping through you and Michael early has uh, put him in good stead. And that moves me on now, Archie, what's the next few years look like and where do you go post Wake Forest? What Have you planned? Are you a planner or are you just going <laughs> to see where life takes you? Uh, so I think at the moment I'm trying not to plan too far ahead uh, because I think – one of the main sort of cons- sort of constraints that I have in my life right now is sort of thinking too far ahead, really, and kind of living too much in my own mind um, about what's happening in the future. Um, I think that I'm because I haven't run, I haven't, I haven't raced in about nearly a year. I haven't raced outdoors in about eighteen months. Um, I think that my next my next step is just going to be sort of graduating from Wake Forest in 18 months' time from now. Um, between now and then, just try and win as many races as possible. Because um, like you said earlier, it's not really about time focus so much. It's just about winning races. So I think I would love to make NCAAs this season. Um, I think that's my most, most immediate goal. Um, so in the outdoor season this year, try and go to NCAAs sort of in May, June. That's sort of my more immediate goal. And then after that, just I would love – ideally to get a professional contract in America. That would be amazing um, to stay there 
Um, if that doesn't happen, which it might not, because that's just something that I would really love, if that doesn't happen, then I think I would come back to Melbourne, uh, maybe do some more study in Melbourne Uni and maybe join a group in Melbourne and try and balance that, um, that lifestyle of doing some extra study in Melbourne Uni and training in Melbourne. Um, and I would equally love that um, as well. So because I'd be back, back where I belong uh, in Australia. So I think... Yeah, whatever happens, happens. And I don't think I'm going to not try to worry about it too much because I think that's sort of one of the main reasons that I've been struggling to perform in the last couple of years because I have been worrying about those things too much. So, Yeah, no, just keep your options open, I suppose, and just, you know, see where life takes you because there's a few uh, uncontrollables and, you know, as we know as coaches, uh, we can't control the uncontrollables. Uh, But it's going to be interesting to see where you go and, look, your your career so far, you know, you can look back on it. You've done a world under 20s, you know. Are you aspiring to Olympic Commonwealth Games world champs? Is that Mm -hmm. part of the the plan? Yeah, I think... It's funny because I think in my mind, I think that that's something I can achieve. Um, it's just about whether I can convince my body to believe that, you know. Um, I, I think that uh, in this sort of the training I do, um, that's that's something that I do want to as- aspire to. Um, but also just the sort of runner that I am and the person that I am, I think that it, sort of telling myself that I need to get there in order to be successful in the sport is sort of something that will ultimately ensure that I never get to that point. Um, so, yeah, I would love to get there. Um, I'm going to try everything I can to get to that point because that's that's a great goal for everyone to have, to sort of be the best they can um, in their respective sport, in their country, you know. Uh, but it's not something that I'm going to say that I have to get to that point in order to be happy, but I would love to, love to get there down the track. Well, it's going to be interesting just following you. It'd be we're looking forward. I think you know if you can get back to competing in Australia at some stage, which is fantastic. But you mm-hmm. do now have you know your outdoor season. You know, and who knows what's going to be happening in the states over the next few months? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, hopefully the the vaccine has some sort of you know great impact and NCAA <laughs> gets going again because yeah. yeah, you'll be back on track before you know it, and then really that's where you've got to produce, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's because we have indoors coming up, but really, that's just just practice for outdoors. So, yeah, yeah. So three three four months time, that's when stuff starts to really heat up. It's, yeah. it's going to be going to be exciting, and hopefully, it's going to be semi normal. Um, not one hundred percent normal, of course, but yeah, it, things are looking up at the moment for sure. Yeah, they certainly are. All right, well, Archie Wallace, thank you so much for giving us your time and your insights into your little. Um, you know, journey across to America, and it's uh, an interesting one. Also, your journey back to Australia, obviously. Sean, have you got any final parting words on on your uh, former sort of mentee and uh, a, a person I know, you know, for our conversations that you're certainly very proud of? <laughs> oh no, it was it was good to get him uh, on the podcast. I know he was stuck with some schoolwork until about four o'clock yesterday morning, so the the juggle for him to finish off exams has been pretty big, but um. No, nah, I, I know everyone, yeah. Uh, I know a, a couple of coaches that have mentored me always give me grief because, you know, obviously Archie was probably the first athlete I got I got pretty involved in um, helping out. But, no, I, I think he's touched on a few good points there in that, um, you know, it, it is quite exciting having that athletic success and, and that's going to be a big thing for a lot of people. But I think the biggest thing he's done is, you know, be an athlete who doesn't sort of derive 
I guess, self-worth or, or where they position themselves in the world or, you know, how happy they're going to be based 100% off athletic achievement. Um, and I know some people would say, you know, that's sort of a bit reductionist or, or people do that as a bit of a safety blanket to, you know, not openly admitting they're going to try and make an Olympics or, or do something that's extremely difficult athletically. But, you know, I, I think that was part of the, the goal in in a, in a young guy heading over to college or, or heading off to uni and, and I guess learning a bit more and, and being a bit more well-rounded and, and yeah, for that high school experience where it's quite a bubble, you know, it's, it's cool to have an experience where you realise there's a little bit more in the world as well <laughs> and you can enjoy some of that stuff. So, no, it's, it's really good to, you know, still be able to catch up with Archie when he comes back and um, keep an eye on his racing in the US and, um, yeah, see how he goes with the next, uh, next sort of 18 months over there. Yeah, well, Archie, Sean, thanks so much to both of you for uh, a very enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on. A couple of really nice interviews, weren't they, Sean? Yeah, yeah, good to get um, a you know, few different perspectives from two guys that have uh, you know, played a fair fair role in the AV community in their, their time in the sport. Yeah, hopefully for younger listeners or for parents or for coaches, it shines a bit more of a light onto the US collegiate system, uh, which has had, you know, interesting sort of aspects of view of the US collegiate system in Australia because, you know, in the old days, it was seen as a place where you just go over and get flogged. Um, And I can sort of now hark back to, say, guys like Dave McNeil going there and, not getting flogged and um, finding that the coaches were very amenable to to fit in with his cycle, what he wanted to do, what races he wanted to do. And um, who else? People like Vic Mitchell going over. I think she was a butler for a year or two. And it was a great experience for her. So, you know. But but it's also that whole, you know, I I get that, you know, you don't want to have a podcast where you're seen as just promoting it as 100% all good. Um, No, no. It's more that thing that. I think that mentality of, say, the 80s or the 90s definitely has changed. And, you know, as both the guys had said, sure, there there are schools where that might still happen. Um, yeah. But, you know, it is it is just a, a case of doing as much research as you can and then, you know. You've got to get the right fit and the right mix and that's yeah. through your when you are talking to these people one-on-one or face-to-face. That's where I think your gut instinct's got to come into play because I've, I've heard, you know, you still hear horror stories. You know, I know of one... Yeah went with a little bit of an injury cloud and couldn't compete in the first semester or first season, was never spoken to by the head coach at all. Was yeah, just pretty shunned, Yeah, shunted <laughs> off to medicals and they were going to operate on this particular athlete and, you know, remove fat pads from the knee and all this sort of stuff. It was absolute train wreck mm-hmm. uh, and came back fairly quickly because um, in the end didn't need fat pads removed at all <laughs> from the knee. Now, this is pretty serious stuff, isn't it? But that's yeah. the dog-eat-dog you can also get in these systems because they're after results. Yeah, and, and I think that is probably the... Um, even like a Max, Maxine Polek that we've spoken to earlier, yeah. Yeah, it, it is trying to get that perspective from athletes where, you know, they tried to make an informed decision and, and also the reasons they had for going as well, um, you know, were, were well-placed as opposed to having really great misconceptions. Um, and I think that the hard thing as well is a lot of those athletes that did go were also at an athletic standard where it was appropriate. So, you know, it is attractive for a lot of kids to want to go over, but if you're sort of not quite at that level, you know, for one of those more mid-tier or, or top-tier schools, um, it's not to say you're not going to have a good time, but I, I feel like some of the 
much smaller or lesser known schools are sometimes more um, more guilty of um, yeah maybe over utilizing their athletes a bit. So um, good to get some perspective from from uh, the guys on the podcast. Yeah, so basically do your research, make sure it's a good fit and then, yeah, it could be a great experience but mm. uh, it's not always a bed of roses either. It is, you know, transplanting young kids uh, and yeah. they still, you know, they, they probably think they're a bit more mature than they are but you're talking <laughs> 17, 18, 19-year-olds going across the other side of the world and, mm. um, you know, uh, losing support networks but hopefully going into good support networks if they make the right choice. Mm. Anyway, let's look at domestic stuff, Sean, because, gee, athletics is going again in Victoria. We're off. Yeah, yeah. So we're back. Um, we had the first HVC meet proper um, last week, and uh, things were happening both in the uh, in the pits and, and on the track. So probably the standout from the meet was was Brooke Stratton. So she reopened her season and um, had a really strong series. So jumped six forty eight, six thirty nine, six sixty five, six fifty five, six seventy eight, and six forty eight. Um, so her her furthest uh, win legal jump was six fifty five, uh, which was plus zero point four, um, and she had a windy six seventy eight, which was plus two point nine. So she seemed really excited with how everything went down there, and, and I think it's one of her, her biggest openers in a season. Um, and, and yeah, I think for her, you know, she sort of feels like everything's coming together in, in what's been a, a tricky year to navigate. Um, but a, a str- yeah. I would hope that all of our listeners follow her on socials because that's certainly the vibe I got on her socials, that this was great. She needed that yes. comp. She was excited by it and she's launched herself in hopefully into a very good uh, preparation towards Tokyo. Yeah, and it was it was the, what's that, one, two, three, four. It was the, so her fifth jump was the 678 windy. So you know, whilst it was a windy jump, you know, she, she'd sort of built throughout that whole series um, and, and seemed quite soaked with the sort of little adjustments she was making on the runway. Um, but a very strong comp um, across the board there. So Mieta Russell jumped 601 uh, with a plus 0.2 wind and Chloe Grenard jumped six metres with a plus 2.6 uh, tailwind for third. Um, in the men's long jump, Amiru uh, Chandrasena had a good day at the office as well. Um, he only got one jump out. Um, in his first jump was a 7.34, and he fouled the next two and then passed the rest. But I think he uh, I think he was happy with the first one. Um, and Charlie Frooms also jumped 7.02 um, in what was more of a mixed um, series, just sort of figuring everything out again. Um, so the long jump was, was quite strong. Um, if we flick over to the the hundreds, um, we saw Jake Penny was back, so looking to I guess try and continue that that vein of form he found himself in down at Lakeside um, late last, well, I guess we say last season, but earlier this year. So he ran ten forty for the win, um, which was a, a real runaway um, win from Lawson Power in second, who doubled up in the hundred and the four hundred. So Lawson was pretty stoked in that he ran a PB. Um, a sizable sort of, I think it was a three-tenths of a second almost PB, um, so down to 10.64. Um, Jacob Despard in third in 10.77. Cam De Bruin ran 10.78 for fourth. Um, and Will Johns was also under 10.80 in fifth with a 10.79. So a, a pretty strong uh, first heat there. We also had Hannah Bassick run uh, 11.71. Um, so sorry, both those both those heats with legal wins. Um, and, and I think you know, Hannah started to piece together I think four of her top 10 sort of career runs have been in, in 2020. So it seems like a year where things are really trending in the right direction. Um, and we saw Madison Coates was back as well. So she was, um, Grace Kelly was second in 12.06. Um, actually got given equal second, so I must have gone down to the photo. 
for 12.06. So Maddie Coates back on the track again, uh, I think coming back from a few niggles. Um, and then Mieta Russell, who we spoke about earlier in the long jump, won the second heat um, around 12.08 and had Chiara Santiglia in second with 12.14 and Daniel Shaw was third in 12.24. Um, over on the men's side with the 400s, um, a, a couple of guys backed up. Um, we had a really strong first heat there with um, with all seven starters, uh, of course, under 50 seconds, but also the top three were all under 48 seconds. So Ross Hine, um, really impressive performance. had been out of shield um, the previous few weeks, sort of doubling up with that one and that four combo. Um, so he ran 46.99 for the win. Um, so he's around 46.82 in Canberra, but to be running sub 47 this early in the year and, I guess sort of the way he did it, you know, he ran, him, ran himself sort of paced off Lawson Power for much of the race um, and then really came home strong in the last 30 and kept his form. Um, Will Johns was second in 47.38 and Lawson Power was third in 47.54. Luke Major, um, our resident 400 hurdler, was fourth in 48.37. Uh, Jack Clark ran a huge PB uh, in running 48.40 uh, for fifth. Uh, Michael Tsotsos was 6th in 48.54 and Conrad Kumaros was 7th in 49.04. Um, so you sort of- mentioned some good names there, Sean, right across the board in those events. So I've yeah, I think HBC's now arrived. That's the way I'd put it. Yeah, I think um, it was it was really good. I actually went down to the event, but there really seemed to be top performances in, in each event group um, and, and in at least those you know, first handful of heats, there was, it was really good depth. And, you know, we saw that on the women's side as well in that, you know, um, Kendra Hubbard was was back on track but um, didn't manage to get the win, got upset by, um, I think it's, I apologize if I get the name wrong, um, I think it's Alana Grandine uh, from Essendon. Yep. She looked quite surprised but pretty happy. Um, she ran 55.97 for the win. Um, Kendra was second in 56.45 and we saw um, Tess Kersop Cole back uh, running 56.96. Um, and then in the second heat as well, I think um, yeah, Marley Wilkinson it must have been a pretty substantial PB from her. She ran 55.48 in the wow. So the quickest women's time of the night. Um, and yeah, no, no, not a knock on Bridget Nidek who was second in 58.02 or, or Kira yeah. Santiglia who backed up in running um, 58.56 for third. But yeah, I think for Marley that was a, a pretty drastic revision um, of her PB. So I haven't looked deeply through the results, Sean, but were there many missing lanes or anything like that, or they were predominantly running fairly full fields? No, there was. I think in in most of those, if if you were to say the first three heats um, of each event, there was maybe a, a lane here and there. Um, yeah. There were two DNSs in the in the women's A race for the hundred, but. Um, Otherwise, no, it was a, it was a pretty full um, full turnout, which was which was good to see. Yeah, well, probably the message to those DNSs is, is try and let the organisers know if you can. I'm not saying they didn't, but to, you know what we want to see is full lanes in these things because then the competition level goes up and it gives someone else an opportunity too. You know, like if if that you know um, Marley Wilkinson had gone up to the A race, that would have been a different to a whole different ball game, wouldn't it? So yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. I do feel for HVC and that yeah, I, I I'm not familiar with it personally, but yeah, I think. It, it, it can be a bit harder to reseed things, you know, sort of on the yeah. night with the sprint format. So, um, yeah, if, if uh, you think you're not going to be there, by all means. Um, yeah, definitely if you know a few days out, no, let the organisers yeah. know because it's just then fair on everybody to yeah. try and get the best level of racing because we do want HVC to succeed. And, and yeah, it looks like it's yeah, it's, it's, it's back, which is great. Uh, Milers Club was was interesting. It was a, a 
COVID prepared Midas Club with check-in zones and holding zones and all sorts of things <laughs> to deal with the numbers. Uh, it worked and it worked well. And, you know, big kudos to all the athletes who adjusted to what we were doing. Um, great to see Jeff Risley back. Um, you know, we, we like to claim him as Midas Club's own. That's where we launched <laughs> him in 2006 prior to the Com Games. And, you know, so, you know, 14 years later, Jeff's still plying his trade, which is good to see. And, um, he ran a 152 to take the win in the 800 just ahead. Oh, look, Major, going for a fairly big time. You know, the aforementioned 400 hurler stepping up to the eight, ran 154, and Darcy Pound 154 as well. Probably the 800 run of the night, though, was uh, Claudia Hollingsworth, 206.33. Sean, what do, you, what do you think of that run? Yeah, I, I know um, Claudia, I think it is, as she Claudia? has corrected me um, at times at the state team 10. Um, yeah, she's really... It's not that she's very new, but you know, I don't think we've seen a lot of her. I think she plays a couple of different sports, and I think um, yeah, Craig Mott, well, she's Heathering, fifteen. So yeah, so she's really young still. Um, yeah. But I think it was last state champs. Yeah, she she won the eight hundred pretty convincingly, and it was it was almost refreshing to hear yeah, her parents said, "Oh, you know, what, what do we do now? Is do, do we have to go to nationals and like all that sort of stuff?" And yeah, they they sort of weren't too sure, and yeah, it, it's good to see. Um, yeah, someone that's that young but seems that sort of relaxed about it. So, um, yeah, her, her running the 800 was really strong and, and sort of hats off to Abby Caldwell for, I guess, taking that first 500 um, as it came and um, getting it really hard for a 1500 runner. Um, but, yeah, Claudia just lined her up from about um, 250 to go and, and absolutely launched over the last 150. Uh, but, yeah, really exciting talent and I think anyone who was – at that Perth sort of all schools mate and, and saw a bit of that um, schools knockout mate when she took on um, uh, a young lady by the name of Senna Vanderlinden. Um, WA is really strong junior 800 runner. They, they ran a 1K there um, last schools knockout and, yeah, Claudia just yeah, basically lost it on a dip on the line and, and no one had really heard of it yet. So, yeah, it looks like a huge talent um, coming up through the ranks and be cool to see how she goes over the next few years. Yeah, I'm trying, going to try and be as tactful as I possibly can. But when I look at Claudia, I don't see anything special. You know, you don't see the. You know, you watch a Jeff Risley, you've seen a Mottram, and you think, "Wow, look at that!" She doesn't look like the atypical, you know, long or you know, the, the beautiful stride of the middle distance. But there's something special, isn't there? There's just something about this girl who loves to race and knows how to win a race as well. Uh, and I think that augurs very, very well as she goes through that next phase of her career, through the next level of maturation. So uh, well, yeah, I think everything race? we've everything we've seen her in the the absolute knockdown quality has just been yeah how how much of a, a savvy competitor she is for someone that hasn't had yeah. time in the sport. Um, just in terms of how she ran tactically and you know sort of running all the way through the line and all, all those sort of little things were, were cool to see. So. Yeah, Craig. Well, probably kudos there to Craig as well. Doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, doing a good job. Yeah, we do. We have a go at him quite often. We're allowed to, but um, Craig Mottram, hats off. For, you know, I think you've got a good, good one there, and I'm, I'm confident that under his tutelage that uh, mm. she will be given the best possible attention. So 1500s. Uh, men's 15 was was interesting, wasn't it? It was, um, you know, we had um, some very reasonable times run, which we had three 345s, which was Shanahan took the win, then Spencer and Hussey. And you're talking about, you know, they're not they're not junior juniors, but they're not the oldest guys getting around either. And um, yeah, yeah. I, I think it was it was cool in that I you know sort of heard um, through the year. Um, 
yeah, Adam had had been a guy that was um, that was very strong as like a almost like an under eighteen, um, and then had had you know that one or two years that a lot of those younger guys have where they're trying to figure out, you know, do they make that jump from 8 to 15? Do they get a bit better at 3K? You know, all, all those sorts of things. And, yeah, Adam was a guy that sounded like he'd run a big PB around the 10 earlier in the year um, in training. And, um, he, yeah, he time-trialed well over 800 the week before and I think he'd gone sort of under 150 sort of handheld, um, as in hand-timed. But, um, yeah, so all, all the sort of stars were aligned there and I had a bit of a chat to him before the race. And, yeah, he, he seemed actually quite laid back about the prospect and, um, yeah, they had Will Lewis lined up to do some pacing, and yeah, yeah Will did a very good job too. Yeah, and, and a nod to Berkey's group as well in in you know Cody and um, and Matt Hussey as well. It sounded like they'd had really consistent um, winters, so it, it was interesting in that even you know traditionally that's that would be an early season meet for milers. Um, there was a real bunch of guys that really want to have a, a good crack at that three forty five mark um, pretty early on. So and and it was a great race as well. So it was good to watch. Um, yeah. yeah, it was good. Yeah. Yeah, and Jeff Risley doubled. Uh, he had, we gave him as much time as we possibly could in the, in the program. About, I think about a forty-five minutes. minutes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and that that was enough for Jeff to come out. And he ran three forty-seven. So, a good sign that Jeff's fit. Uh, but yeah, some, he got a little bit. Uh, he got a little bit caught up on the line. I think he he looking for some more practice on the starts. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he just dropped to the the rear of the field early, and I think it's probably yeah. the best place for him to be because he knew with the pacer there that you know he could didn't have to do anything, just sit in there and see. Where yeah, I, I think it was more from watching it from the the start line side. He got he got tripped a little bit in the first three steps, yeah. and right. he said, "Yeah, he he probably underestimated how much those guys at the front were, how organised they were, in, in that you know there was no." You know, it's interesting in some of those milers races. There's a bit of a look around to see who's going to take the lead or who's going to take yep. the pace. Or but they knew. Yeah. There was probably five or six guys that were straight onto it. So yeah, he, he um, left himself a fair bit of work to do at the end. But um, no, he came. yeah, I mean, he still came through. But you know, it's still good runs. Also, I think probably a PB for Baisha, three forty-seven. Uh, Peter Green, I know, is very happy with a three forty-eight opener. Yeah. Uh, Sam Williams would have been wrapped with a three forty-nine opener, and Harrison Carr, I think that was the first time under three fifty for him. Yeah, yeah. So he's had a really big winter of of work. So cool to see those guys convert at basically their first opportunity. Yeah, and even yet yeah, ninth position, uh, Jake Stevens probably more known for his eights, but he PB'd with a three fifty. So that was a good quality. 1500 probably not as much a deep quality in the women's but um race favorite would have been, well Gigi Macanini doesn't do many 15s I think she had her arm twisted halfway up her back by Peter Fortune to do this event <laughs> not a, um, not a fan of uh 801 meters no you know national champion over four and eight mm. uh and then uh you know the the delightful Mr Fortune suggested to him it might be a good to sorry to Gigi it might be a good idea to try the 15 so just sat mid-pack. I don't think as commentator I hardly called her name because you do know when you call McEnany. Uh, yeah. She was just invisible for most of the way and then just launched, I think, with what, about 200 out, Sean? She uh, made the move. Yeah, well, well and truly uh, took off. Yeah. But, you know, 435 for Gigi, 439 for Megan, Bridge Humphrey, 440. So, you know, <laughs> some good names 
in there, but um, yeah, probably just not quite the depth of the men's. But that's okay. It's still early season, and and hopefully we're going to see uh, more of them coming out to play um, yep. in the next few weeks as well, or into January. Rare Air Club back again too, and they were across a few different venues. So they had Barrick and they had Box Hill and Geelong. A couple of the standouts that I've picked from the Rare Air in Geelong, the girls' competition was pretty strong with Cassidy Bradshaw getting a three eighty five clearance, and then you had Grace Bath and Lydia Gross both getting three fifty fives, and Box Hill. Lachlan Burns 485 uh, was the winner of that comp. James Woods, the Bendigo boy, 475, and also on 475, Joel Pocklington. So rare, rare, lots of comps this year. As usually, um, the pole vaulting fraternity extremely well organised uh, under uh, Mr Stewart and various others. And yeah, we look forward to to giving them lots of coverage and lots of love. Be, I, actually, I'll try and get out to a couple of their meets if if um, the timing goes all right and do some interviews because it'll be really nice to get the the pole vaulters uh, giving some good coverage. Sean, so Launceston, do you want to have a chat about Launceston? You've got the results up. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so um, a, a pretty huge uh, undertaking by our good friend down that way, uh, Richard Welsh. So Ably assisted by Athletics Victoria CEO Glenn Turner. Yeah, on the on the mic, getting some, yep. some commentary in. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was good to see a, a return, I guess, in, in proper to, to a big sort of loaded road race. Um, and I think because everyone had known about it so far out and, and there had been that smattering of track races, you know, some of the more 5K, 10K types and even the half marathon um, inclined athletes, you know, knew it was on the cards early and could uh, plan accordingly. Um, so I guess starting at the top with uh, the men's 10K, so Jack Rayner took that one out in 28.48. Uh, and I think he got out like an absolute freight train. So I think judging by Strava, he was about 2.37 through the first K. Um, so I tried to put the gap in pretty early. Um, and his training partner, Geordie Williams, was second in 28.57 and, and made up a fair bit of ground in the last sort of 1,500. Um, had Liam Adams in third in 29.01. Waring from Box Hill made the trip down as well around 2903. Um, so I guess even just looking at this list, you know, you've got um, how many how many sub 30s? Well, yes, yeah, so you had eight under 30 minutes, but it was also more that you had you know one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You had ten guys in the top 15 who ran PBs. Um, right. Okay. So even like Cody Shanahan, who you know we just spoke about with Milers, he was down there around 2923. And I know Jared Clifford had a bit of a rough day at the office and said, you know, he, he might have, I think he changed something up a bit with his nutrition and he found the the light a bit hard in, in the early morning sort of coming back up off the road and he just felt really disoriented, he said, and at the 5K turnaround he chucked everywhere. Um, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, and then he said he, he got about another 500 metres down the road and, and chucked again and thought, wow. oh, God, this could be this could be early doors. But um, he pushed on and he ran 30-23, so not – I don't think it's technically a PB, but um, yeah, I think he, if every time he experiments with something, um, yeah, that, I think as he said, the outcomes can be. Jared, so, don't experiment. No, so I think he's. <laughs> when things are, when you're going well, you're going well. Yeah. Uh, Chuck so, Clifford has a bit of a ring to it too, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's he a bit disappointed, but not, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, but yeah, even, even down to 15th, we're still sub 30 30, so really good 10K there. Um, yep. um, Women? Yeah. In the women's 10K, uh, Jen Gregson got the win in a very tightly contested women's race. Um, so as I understand it, um, Sinead Diver did a bit of leading at the start with the sort of, I guess, marathon legs to, um, to try and get things moved along at a pretty stern pace, uh, and that it was. So Jen got the win in 32 flat, um, which is a road PB, 
Um, Rose Davies. It's only about two seconds off the course record too, I think. I think 31. Yeah. Yeah, and Rose Davies was um, leading on some of the social media stuff I saw inside that sort of last K as well. So it was was really tightly contested. Um, So she ran 32.02, which is a huge jump forward for someone that's, um, well, only sort of turned 21 this week, I think, uh, or next week. So that's a yeah, fair statement um, and bodes well for Zatopec. Um, uh, Izzy Bat-Doyle was third in 32.10, so PB as well, um, and a huge jump forward by Tara Palm as well in fourth in 32.14. Yeah, some wise heads are saying that that might have been potentially the run of the day in that event for Tara. Yeah. She's been around a long time, but to then jump forward um, in that respect was a, a big, big run. Yeah, and even just going through that that sort of top ten, like um, Lauren Ryan ran thirty two fifty eight, um, just behind Sinead. Who ran that was her debut, wasn't it, for Lauren? I think so. Yeah, so yeah. really strong um, opener at that distance, and then yeah, sort of Casey Wood, Marnie Ponton, Matt Rule, and, and Ruby Smee rounded out the top ten, and they were all sort of between um, thirty three thirty and uh, thirty three fifty. So yeah, still some some good results there. Yeah, and there was a half marathon as well. Yep, there was a men's and women's half. So in the men's half, I think there was a, a bit of chatter about trying to get the all comers, the Aussie all comers record, which I think is still sixty one thirty um, by Pat Carroll. Might have been a little bit quicker. Um, Brett Robinson didn't quite snag it. I don't think he got the Tassie all comers record, but not the the Aussie one. Um, so he ran sixty one thirty eight. Um, I think they were about twenty nine minutes through ten k. So they had a had a fair go, and there was a, it was a group of three guys at ten k. Of uh, Brett Robinson, Thomas DeCanto, and Ed Goddard. Um, so I think Ed uh, attempted to go with Brett for a bit longer, and the wheels came off a little bit at 15k. Um, and then it came down to a bit of a sprint finish between DeCanto and Goddard, and um, DeCanto ran a huge PB and ran 62.13. Um, yeah, yet again, Wisehead saying that that was an eye-popping performance from DeCanto. You know, this is a guy who has represented Australia at World Half Marathon Champs. Almost, yeah, almost a two. He's PB. gone to a new league with that that time yeah. and that then that comp- competitive edge that he had so obviously things going really well for decanto yeah and a, and a big jump for goddard as a 23 year old yeah down oh. a, a sub 60 230 run so good yeah. precocious talent edge. sean precocious talent <laughs> as, as a man best known for swimming in the harbor in in napoli every day at world unis um no. he's uh sort of i think that's the best thing about him ed just doing ed has uh has yeah. pretty well well, did you have much to do with him in, in Naples with World Unis? Yeah, yeah, I saw a fair bit of him. And the hard thing was yeah. half marathon was like the absolute last event. So because the team got there, you know, for the start of the event, um, it was so hot and humid. So Ed was getting up quite early, not quite as early as some of the rest of the team, but still getting up pretty early every day and, and getting some of those longer last-minute runs or yeah. you know, last preparation sessions in on, on these sort of cobbles and this long road that, went past the bay and I know Adam Didick at first was a bit stressed in continually wondering where Ed was, but um, Ed developed a bit of a system in ensuring Adam that he would take people with him to keep an eye on him. But uh, yeah, would pretty much go for a run every day and then just dive into the harbour. So yeah, no, it, it's one of those types of you, an absolute <laughs> delight to have in any team. Um, yeah. You know, really, really nice guy. Really yeah, nice guy. So, cool and, just, and, and he, he brings uh, um he brings a level head, which I think a lot of people get surprised by. But Ed is extremely smart and extremely level-headed. And as I said, you know, I've team managed him once in Switzerland, mm. and he was just an absolute gem to deal with. Very professional. Yeah. Very, so I think he, said he knows he'd how to had, run when it matters as well. Yeah, I think he said he'd had about six weeks or seven weeks before it running sort of you know 180 to 200 k's a week. So sounds like he's got a huge block in. Um, yeah. 
and is feeling good. So, and he'll be heading back to the states again. At some stage, um, I'm not sure from from his perspective. I'm I'm not too close. It's all up in the air for a lot, isn't it? It's yeah. You know, some are sort of heading back to and, and others yeah. are delaying or. You know, yeah, because Lauren was obviously over. Lauren Rhymes over from the states as well, because she's yeah, yeah, yeah. So. and like Lockie Cook as well was in the ten k with the guys. So yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a couple sort of floating around. Um, yeah. and the, the other spots of note in the uh, half marathon: Riley Cox was fourth in sixty four oh two, Tim Vincent was fifth in sixty four thirteen, and uh, Archie Reed was sixth in sixty five forty three, which is shiny new PB. Um, Jacob Cox sixty five forty five. And then the top 10 was rounded out with uh, Aiden Hobbs, who ran a season's best. Ben Kelly ran a pay bay of 66.35. And uh, Brett Ellis ran 66.51 for a, a season's best. So pretty yeah, good strong depth. lineup there. Yep, uh, very strong. Over on the women's, it wasn't quite as deep down to, say, 10th, but um, the top five were all under 80 minutes. And uh, it was a bit of a battle up front between um, Andrea Sakafian, our Canadian um I'd say she's much more than a visitor, has been here for quite some time. Yeah, quite regular. Almost a local. Um, she ran 71.39 and Jess Stenson was second in 72.27 um, and a sizable PB by Katinka von Elsner-Wellsteed, who is from Queensland, I believe. Uh, she ran six, um, sorry, not 67. That would have been interesting. Um, 77.43. So. Do you know anything about her? I've never heard of her. Vaguely, only through uh, a good triathlon friend of mine, uh, Jack uh, Jack Van Stecklenburg, you may recall from back in the day. He's he's certainly do Geelong boy. One of the tri groups up there, and yeah, he he'd um, pointed out a few pretty uh, pretty strong Strava sessions she'd um, Katinka had put up. So I don't know exactly which group she's in, but whoever uh, whoever's on the advisory panel there is um, doing a really good job because she's uh, so twenty two. So doing some yeah, great. Right. Cool. So that was about it from uh, Long System, but cool to see everything get back in business, um, and that will lead nicely into their uh, their well known Christmas carnivals, which hopefully I don't actually know. Hopefully, we'll see uh, Stuart McSwain at. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stuart's been around. I've seen him around the lake quite often, um, so he's definitely running. The, the, man uh, a, the man without a GPS or a, or a heart rate monitor. Man of good yeah, on him. No data. Yeah. All good. <laughs> yeah. No. Look, there's uh, and you'll you'll be up. up or this might drop after Bankstown, but you've got that coming up. And as yeah, usual, a, a fantastic meet plan for Bankstown uh, this Saturday night. Definitely. Uh, yeah, so that should be something to look forward to. And then we've got Milers Club again next week as well. And that rounds out the 2020 season. Uh, yeah. Miles Cup's going to be big. Um, gee, I'd love to say everyone get there uh, and come along and have a watch, but we're really worried now about exceeding the 1,000 capacity at the venue, which we're not allowed to go over 1,000. So, um, because we're already, we're probably going to have close to 400 competitors. I'm talking maybe 30 odd races there. Uh, it's going right. to be. Up- updates as we get closer to it, we'd advise. Yeah, just watch uh, Facebook and things like that. We'll get the fields out. Uh, all right, Sean. Well, thanks so much for. Um, uh, putting together the guests for our episode number 50. Uh, no worries. Looking forward to 2021. Uh, what's your plans for Christmas? I assume that you'll be busy. Are you going up to Falls? No, no. I, I've passed on Falls to um, take up my my Tassie media role again. With, ah, lovely. Uh, I think I might fly out on even Boxing Day. So it's actually right. it's quite nice going down to Tassie and and getting to know everyone a bit better down that way um, and helping out. So probably do that and then, um, yeah, back in the office pretty soon after. Yeah, we are talking about a return to office uh, on 4th of Jan. Uh, will be interesting. Uh, we'll we'll see where... too, so I'm back to civil. Oh, 
Well, how many, how many times have you been evicted this year? That's no, no, no evictions. Fake news. No evictions for me. Just uh, back into civilization. So looking forward to it. Right. Excellent. All right. Well, once again, big thank you to the expertise you've brought to the um, to the podcast over 2020. Uh, it sort of makes up for my lack of knowledge. Um, luckily, I can talk. Uh, let's look forward to 2021. Who knows where it takes us? Let's just hope and pray to whatever God you believe in that there's no third wave because mm. we want to have an XCR season. We want to have uh, as close to normality. And, and that's certainly the way AV are approaching it. When we look forward to next year, we're not going to do anything radical. We're not going to do anything out of the box. It's going to be give everyone what they know, what they're used to, and let's just try and get back to some level of normality with the, the athletics world. So well that's a wrap. Episode 50. Thanks, Sean. <laughs>